Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. As listeners would be aware, there's been a lot of concern about the, the quality of political discourse and representation in Parliament over a great many years. I've talked about it to friends as, as Parliament being uh, a bit like uh, going to the freezer section of Woolworths and getting a, a carton, a, a container of Neapolitan ice cream. It's if you've got chocolate, you've got vanilla, you've got strawberry, that's fine, whatever your flavour, but it's all still politics, all ice cream. I'm not sure that analogy necessarily works as well in the parliament we now have, given that there's been people who don't sit in a traditional political party elected uh, in great numbers for the first time, and I'm talking about them today. Uh, Zoe Daniel is a former uh, ABC journalist who uh, was persuaded by uh, another journalist, Zoe, uh, Angela Pippos, rather, uh, to run for parliament. She joins me to talk about the experience she's had in her first two weeks in that big house on the hill. Zoe, thank you so much for making time. Yeah, pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Likewise. the You've gone from observing the way in which politicians behave, you've crossed the line, you've walked into Parliament. What are the first observations that you make as a, as a newbie on the chamber floor about the organisation of the place? I think there's a few things. One is that parliamentary language and process is very specific. And even as a journalist who's been around politics in several different countries, there's a lot to learn on that front. It's a very steep learning curve when it comes to not only the standing orders within the parliament, but just how to do things, how to get speaking slots, for example, how to get your questions up, how to put forward motions and matters of public importance and, and those sorts of things. So just working out how to have impact. But the second thing that really struck me over the first sitting fortnight was the intersection between what I'm doing here in my community of Goldstein and just how that then fits with the parliamentary process, both in terms of having direct impact on legislation. The climate change bill is a good example that went through the House of Reps in that first fortnight, but also in terms of the advocacy that you can do with ministers and, and indeed members of both major parties. So just figuring out how to actually have those conversations and how to make those conversations translate to action in terms of legislative change and, and policy change. It, it's an interesting place, the parliament, the, the sort of Canberra bubble thing is quite real in the sense that when you walk into the parliament, you tend to not go out because of where it's positioned in Canberra. So you, you tend to go in at 6.30 in the morning and you don't leave the parliament until up our state at night. So you very much are inside there. But, you know, my real aspiration and intent is to very directly connect what I'm doing in that building with what's happening here in my community. 
you've raised an interesting point, and it'd be it, it, we can expand on that. The and in the introduction to this, I mentioned the fact that you're not within a traditional political party. You're operating as an independent. Yes, at times you might cooperate with the others because you have uh, common interests, but you don't. You you're in a unique position where you don't need to push out party colleagues or elbow party colleagues or uh, aside to go up that ladder of succession, right? It, mm. So it's less, of a, it's less of a bloody mess in Zoe Daniels' office than it might be in somebody else's, for example. Um, how do you, do you, do you see that as being kind of an advantage that you bring to the table in being able to, say, deal with the constituents matter pretty pretty expeditiously without having to worry about the, the party political side of things? Yeah, I do, actually. And, and I also think that a degree of not knowing the system is a good thing because you don't know what you're not meant to do. <laughs> so <laughs> you can sort of overstep <laughs> in a legitimate way um, without people saying, well, hang on, you should have known that you weren't meant to do that or you should have gone through a particular protocol in order to meet with this minister or do X, Y, Z within the parliament. I think one good example of that was that the new crossbench independence along with Zali Stegel, we brought a, a motion on or a matter of public importance on refugees in which we all spoke to the fact that indefinite detention should be ceased immediately. And of course, we're not bound by party lines on that issue. We're bound only by the positions of those in, in our electorate and our own I guess, ethical position on the matter. So we can speak quite freely on that kind of thing without breaching a party position. And it means that you can elevate issues in a very different way to the way in which you can do it if you have to adhere to both the party line but also the hierarchy. Is that a It strikes me that it seems to be a more comfortable position for someone that walks into... Parliament, having spent a long time in the public eye and reported on things from a particular ethical uh, viewpoint as a journalist, uh, it seemed serving as an independent seems to be better aligned with your background. Yeah, uh, look, I never could have run for either of the major parties. I'm just not ideological. And I think that as a journalist, particularly an ABC journalist for almost 30 years, that I had very much trained myself to be able to see multiple sides of an issue and look at things through different sides of the prism and have conversations with people that come at things from different positions than me. And, you know, I think like a lot of journalist I've never aligned myself even at, at a personal level with either of the major parties I've always been a swinging voter and I very much voted based on the leadership of the party at the time and what I thought 
that particular leadership group could deliver. So it's certainly much more comfortable for me as an independent, but it's more than that. It's actually that I couldn't have done it unless this way of doing it was presented to me. And certainly I wasn't looking for an entree into politics. And it was only when, as you said, my friend Ange came to me and said, would you be interested in doing this? Initially, I said, absolutely, no way, not a chance. Um, But then once I thought about it, I realised that this was a way of entering politics without having to pick a side where you could still have impact in a different way. And, And that's still evolving, just exactly how that shapes up. One of the interesting steps you took during the fortnight recently was to abstain from a particular vote. Can you explain to anyone listening to this podcast what that issue was about and why you took the step you did? Yeah, so the government was making an amendment to superannuation legislation because of a court case that's been brought by a group of former diplomats who had been posted overseas in rent-free accommodation. So we're, in effect, Commonwealth government employees on the public service superannuation scheme. And Uh the concern resulting from this court case is that there could be a huge government liability of billions of dollars if rent paid on properties was seen as part of people's salary and therefore should have been eligible for superannuation. And I realised when this legislation amendment came across my desk that I was a person who was going to be directly affected by this issue because, of course, I'm a three-time foreign correspondent and therefore I lived in rent-free accommodation that was paid for by the Commonwealth uh, in several countries overseas. So it, it seemed to me that it was inappropriate for me to participate in debate or to vote on that issue when there was a direct financial either cost or benefit, not only to me, but to staff that I've managed and to lots of people that I've known in the international context. So I stood up in the parliament and said that I wouldn't be involved in any debate and that if there was a division that I would remove myself from the chamber. Uh, Sophie Scomps, who was sitting behind me, also had a a family conflict of interest in that one of her family members is in a similar situation. So she stood up as well and we both removed ourselves from the chamber. It was only when I was sitting outside the chamber that I got a text message from Cathy McGowan, uh, the former independent for Indi, saying, wow, I have never seen that before, <laughs> someone declaring a conflict of interest in, in the chamber. But it, it seemed to me to just be the obvious thing to do. Where does that come from? Yeah, well, where's the ethical Zoe Daniels' ethical compass? Well, I I, I think it comes from where does it come from? Well, look, my father's um, someone who I think taught me my ethics when I was a child, and I've always tried to be as ethical as I, as I can be in the way that I've lived my life. And I think that that goes to um, what we were talking about in journalism of trying to be even-handed and as objective as possible in the way that I've covered politics and events unfolding around the world. So, I mean, that's the underpinning of it. Uh, Look, it just seems to me or seemed to me in that instance that if I had a a direct financial benefit um, 
uh, from voting a particular way that it was inappropriate for me to vote on that legislation. And I think that in a boardroom setting, for example, uh, probably someone who was in a similar position would take the same kind of action. It's just that that's not required of parliamentarians. But it kind of goes to what I said before, which is when you don't kind of know the rules, but you just go with your instinct, maybe you do things a little differently to the way they've been done. <laughs> when you were running for uh, Parliament, you there were three key, key issues that, 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 that unified a group of you. Uh, one of them was climate. The other is equality, and the third was the integrity. Right. Um, if I can take you in the time we have remaining um, to the topic of the integrity in Parliament, what are your key concerns in terms of the Parliament? As, as it has worked in the past? Look, I think especially in recent years, and also this is coloured by my experience covering the Trump administration in the US. And of course, I covered the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and then the, the bulk of his administration was the, the blurring line or the shifting of the, the benchmark of expectation from our leaders in terms of the truth that they're delivering to us and the level of misinformation and, and deliberate disinformation that is perpetuated by those in leadership positions in order to manipulate the public. And, of course, in the US you saw Donald Trump use social media very adeptly to bring people along with him, but within that context, there was a lot of gaslighting of the public and seeding of disinformation, which led up to, in my mind, the storming of the US Capitol on January 6th in uh, 2021. But then that translates, I think, to the Australian context where I think over recent history, that level of distrust in government has also seeped through here. And I think that's very problematic. So my position is that we need increased transparency of the behaviour of those in elected positions, um, that, you know, the public has a right to know how and why decisions are being made, uh, who people are meeting, what they're meeting them about, who's in position of influence, why grants are being given, um, and all those sorts of things, you know. A lot of governing is doling out taxpayers' money um, for particular projects and um, developments, and that, that needs to be done in good faith. And as, as taxpayers, our communities should know why that money is being spent and what it's being spent on and how that will benefit communities. So there's, there's a whole lot of pieces there, but restoration of trust in leadership, I think, is hugely critical to democracy. Uh, and I think the lack of trust in leadership is a great threat to democracy across the world. The institution you've been a part of for many years, 
that being the media, uh, before you could have crossed the line, I won't say join the dark side, but you, mm. you've uh, repurposed your skill set in other places. The role of the media um, is obviously important. What are the things that you feel the media needs to keep in mind? when it is covering the political scene, irrespective of who happens to be in power. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it, that you say crossing to the dark side because that's kind of the way I would have viewed it too. But I, I sort of at the position now that I'm on this side where I wonder which side is the dark side, um, yeah. having now been on the receiving end of some pretty poor journalism over the last several months. Uh, and I do think that the media needs to remind itself that it's not just a mouthpiece of the powerful, that it, it should be a check and balance on the powerful. And the media needs to be, and, you know, we talk about the media, but journalists need to be conscious of not being manipulated by the narrative of those who seek to achieve or retain power. And it, it goes back to being true to yourself and being rigorous in, in your approach to things. Um, you know, the media shouldn't just swallow a particular party narrative and then further perpetuate that in the way that it reports. Media should be really um, taking an objective position and testing um, the, the multiple positions that there might be. And, you know, we've, we have been in a traditional two-party system which has now sort of splayed out to be much more diverse. And the media, therefore, has a, a responsibility to reflect those diversity of positions in its reporting and, and not to just sort of back in um, the most powerful in the conversation. And, you know, it, I, I say these things in good faith because I think that, you know, the media has kind of in many ways been dragged along with two-party politics um, and has become almost wedded to two-party politics just as much as the major parties have in this country because that's the system that we've been operating under. But I think it took a while for the penny to drop in the media that something different was happening um, before the election. Uh, initially, the new group of independents, of which I was one, were sort of dismissed as, as a bit of a flash in the pan that wouldn't get elected and wouldn't change anything. Uh, well, I think we've taken um, as individuals, but as a, a new group of people on the crossbench, some steps so far to prove that, in fact, something different is uh, and was happening. And that's a reflection of what the community wanted. Uh, you've been... You, you yourself have been in, in the throes of reporting for many years. Um, and your guidance on this issue is probably going to be useful to anyone in the media that hears it. How do people inoculate themselves um, from yeah, just performing a narrative in their work? What's it? What, what? What? If anyone's thinking about it, what's the secret? 
talk to ordinary people. Don't just talk to those in the corridors of power and don't just talk to each other. I think tapping into community and really trying to understand the undercurrents of what is happening in cities and towns and remote communities is the way to actually um, create the sort of rigour that I'm talking about to then take forward to challenge those in leadership positions. And I, I would take it back to covering the election of Donald Trump in 2016. I spent, and the staff in the DC Bureau, spent most of that year outside Washington talking to ordinary people in the small cities and towns across America. And I definitely, um, before the election, expected that Trump would win, uh, which was very counter to the prevailing narrative. But that's because the time that we spent as journalists was talking to actual people about the actual reality of their life, not just listening to what was happening in DC. Um, and that enabled us to sort of challenge a position uh, and have a different perspective on what was going on. It takes me back uh, to a journalism textbook um, that we studied in RMIT when I was, uh, when I wore short pants and had less grey hair, um, that had a, two acronyms. One of them was G-O-Y-A, get off your ass, and the other one was K-O-D, knock on doors. Mm. Um, I know it's probably not going to be the last time we talk, but th th thank you for joining me uh, on this podcast. Um, it, where can people find you if they want to know more about you, where you are and what you're doing? Yeah, thanks, Tom. So um, people can find me on socials, of course, I'm on Facebook and my public page and also on Twitter at ZDaniel and on Instagram at Zoe Daniel and also my website, zoedaniel.com.au. Um, I'm putting out fortnightly newsletter, so if people want to be kept, kept informed, they can jump on there and sign up to get regular feedback about um, what I'm up to, uh, but also to have regular input into the sorts of things that I should be taking forward to Canberra. And thanks again for joining me for this particular chat. Pleasure. Thanks, Tom.